coming up on Art Palace. I always loved drawing because I felt like that's where the artist is most naked. You know, you can add lots of other stuff and then you don't know really what's going on. But in the mark, the drawing is the most naked. Welcome to Art Palace, produced by Cincinnati Art Museum. This is your host, Russell Eyrig. Here at the Art Palace, we meet cool people and then talk to them about art. Today's cool person is Gary Gaffney, Professor Emeritus at the Art Academy of Cincinnati. This episode was recorded live in our galleries with a small group of visitors, so you might hear more background noise than normal. We started the conversation by looking at Gary's life-size drawing of a female figure titled Woman Resurrected. This piece was originally created in 1986, but after a leak in his studio stained parts of the drawing, he reworked it in 2009. So tell folks a little bit about how you sort of came to the Art Academy. Well, I didn't have a traditional uh, growing up in an art school. Uh, I was training to be a research mathematician and working on my PhD when I decided that that wasn't a creative route for me. So I went back to um, graduate school, university art, and then came to Cincinnati to get my MFA and then took a job right at the Art Academy because at that time the Art Academy only offered a certificate Okay. And they were beginning a BFA program, and they were a small school, and they needed someone who could teach both art and academic subjects. And so it turned out that this is a wonderful thing for me, because over 33 years of teaching, I taught 42 different classes in studio and liberal studies, and uh, many of them I created myself. And what I found out was that if I taught a new class in something I didn't really know, then that went into myself and into my art. So in this particular pair, you only see the female, but uh, in this particular pair, um, I was thinking that so many images we see of co in contemporary art of figures, it's really how they're dressed or the nude figure or the skin out, really. And in our culture... We have so many new ways of seeing the human being through x-rays, through um, uh, all kinds of medical devices, and yet we have a history. So we ground from that up into ourselves, growing from all parts of nature into all aspects of what a woman could be. And um, it was interesting to me because this is maybe the second or third series, and I discovered that... Uh, instinctively, the men were all the philosophers and the mathematicians, and the women were all the, the feeling people. And so I had to go back and rethink the whole drawing to include a more, uh, a more complex and wider vision of who a woman was. But that's, that's what I see. I, I mean, this is... This is woman. This is so your your own viewpoints changed in from the beginning of making this piece to the later yes. uh, resurrection of it. Well, I came. I started as a mathematician and and a chemistry minor, mm -hmm. and that stuff is in there. But there's more and more and more piled on as I thought about it more and more. And and that same thing happened in my teaching at the art academy. I started out teaching 
drawing and history and philosophy of science class mm -hmm. and then went on from there to teach all kind of interesting stuff. Yeah. So how do you think... How do you think that, uh, I mean, I know, and you just mentioned teaching things that were literally based in kind of like you taught some things that were mathematics based right. and, and stuff, but how do you think that background in math um, and science sort of informed how you looked at art and how you talked about it with students, or do you think it did, I guess? Uh, actually, it did in, in a kind of consequential way, because in contemporary education, every subject is its own complex and an intricate subject, and it builds walls around itself. And so you don't think that an artist should be a scientist or a scientist should be a poet or any of those other kinds of things, when in fact, in the real life of people, we're all kinds of things. And so what I tried most to do in my teaching was break down the boundary between uh, mathematics and science and art to show that the creativity that goes back and forth between those because there really were <laughs> there really were none of those boundaries until fairly recently, and um, so I mean that boundary didn't exist in me, and so why should it exist in the way I looked at the world and taught students to look at the world? So Gary, just so everyone knows, like kind of my personal story, Gary was actually my first teacher at the academy. I think like I had you at least day one when I started. You would have been probably the first person I met, um, and, and really one of the lessons I think, that, or the thing I remember you being so interested in was things that sort of defeated boundaries, right? Yes. That was like a yes. very big yes. point for you. So yes. it's interesting now thinking about that in terms of the way that even on a sort of human level of having a personal boundary of being a scientist or an artist right. and those things um, being defeated, but for you it was often about things sort of defeating the the frame, you know, right. of, of an artwork or sort of going beyond the places we think something could go. Right. And I think that was a, a big part of pushing, especially for early students, of trying to get them to think literally outside the box in a right. lot of ways. Well, yeah. I think that you hear a lot about thinking outside of the box, but I think people don't take the time first to see what box they're actually in. Right. Because because no matter how much you think outside of the box, you're still in another box. <laughs> right. And you'll never get outside the box. It's just a bigger and bigger and bigger, more interesting box. Yeah. It seems like you're very, that the complicated nature of who you are affected even what was being taught at the academy in that way. And that we were teaching these things like um, courses on science and religion simultaneously. And I think you taught a course on that, right? And you, you, yes. you did have like a pretty big interest in religion as well, yes, right? Yes, I did. It's, yeah. in, it's in these works too, because to me, another, another thing you almost never find in contemporary art is a real engagement with spirituality. Mm -hmm. So I was interested in that. And um, I continue to be interested in that. Yeah, I mean, obviously, the biblical subject matter is a pretty direct connection. But then I think, you know, you've, you've, you're always interested in these ways of like, um, you know, there's like, are these like star charts or things down here and sort of ways of representing the universe and sort of almost even the way that this figure dissolves into the structure in some, on one hand, it seems very kind of like scientific that it's bone, but the very idea of a body sort of dissolving, um, and sort of disappearing, feels very spiritual too. Mm -hmm. this, this sort of body left and just sort of the structure underneath. 
But uh, this is woman, but that's woman, but that's woman, but that's woman, but that's woman, and that's woman. What do you mean by that? Like, which, which, which? It's all, they're all manifestations of woman. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're in a culture, then you see a woman as a certain person in a certain form and a certain symbolic representation. Right. But when you throw them all together, then that completes what woman is or can be, or man is or can be. Right. Right. Well, thank you for talking about this piece. I, I thought that was this would be a great way to sort of get us started. So what I want to do now is kind of. We're going to move around a little bit. I just want to hop over really quick uh, to talk about this piece right there where this poor unsuspecting person just went into look. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> just walking in a gallery, just minding your own business, didn't think anything of it. So I just wanted to talk a little bit about this piece um, called Dust Ball by Mark Fox. Um, did you know Mark pretty well? Or? Yes, I did. So did Mark went to the, did he go to the academy at all or did he just teach no, there? No, he taught there. Yeah, because I had him as a teacher, so that's how I knew. Um, yeah, it says here he taught from 2003 to 5. Um, so uh, Mark, if you don't know, Mark Fox um, has actually a piece on view right now downstairs that is the video that was made around the same time as this piece um, when he had a show here at the museum. Um, and he had this video, uh, he has this video piece downstairs of Mr. Peanut destroying the museum, <laughs> which if you haven't seen it is, is certainly enjoyable. I, we watched it with our, uh, we do summer camp here. Uh, last year we had the kids watch it and they were like losing their minds. They loved it so much, <laughs> like screaming every time he crushed something. But yeah, he was, he was an interesting guy. He was very quiet, but you know, making this kind of crazy work that was ultimately all about sort of destruction basically. Do you have any any other thoughts about Mark or any memories of Mark? Yeah, I'll try to put it in a different context if I can. Sure. Um, one of the most important things to me about the history of the Art Academy is that it really emphasized solid, disciplined drawing as the basis for everything. Yeah, that's true. And you'll see this in a lot of the images. And for a long time, that solid, disciplined drawing really was the anchor for everything but it was also something that corralled so much of the other work. So art was about certain kinds of things and certain kinds of, you know, landscape figures, that sort of thing. But over time, artists broke away and images like this, you would see because they were expressive, because Mm -hmm. they were a different facet of who the artist was. And... I always loved drawing because I felt like that's where the artist is most naked. Hmm. You know, you can add lots of other stuff and then you don't know really what's going on. But in the mark, the drawing is the most naked. And I think here you can see Mark in that. And his piece at the art museum that he uh, created was out of dust he had collected from around the museum. Mm-hmm. And, you know, for, for somebody like Mark, I think a lot of his purpose was Anything is art. There's beauty in anything, even a dust ball, and I can show you. Yeah. Also, the idea that um, play is important. Play is essential. You know, a lot, a lot of art earlier seemed to be so much about talent and discipline, whereas in the contemporary time, it's more about creativity and play. And Mark, with the puppets and the, uh, the video that um, um, we talked about earlier, 
That's the creative play that's so important. So that's what I would say about Mark. Yeah, and I think it's a really smart, the idea of collecting dust around a museum and thinking about almost dust as this sort of residue of humanity um, and in that connection with art, too. And sort of by putting it under this little protective jar and everything, it's like presenting like this thing that's like, we were here, we were alive, you know, and that's kind of what art is. So I think it's a really smart way of looking at the whole history of art. I think he was very conscious of, you know, obviously this piece about making works literally about the museum. Um, he's, he's very much thinking about the whole history of art. I, I would also say that, you know, there, there's a kind of common uh, statement that says, uh, a piece of art gets about six seconds when you visit a museum. <laughs> yeah. But if you just look at the difference between my piece and his piece, the way you approach it, what the questions you ask, the kind of answers you get, what the artist is after, those are so different. And you can't, uh, that's the work of a museum. Being in a museum really is you have to carry something inquisitive to every piece, knowing there's different expectations and different messages. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, we were talking a little bit before everyone got here and sitting down, and I was talking about, you know, some of the things that I took away, important lessons from the Art Academy. And for me, I remember when I started here, I sat down and they gave me like, oh, you should read this book that's all about teaching in the museum. And I was reading this book, and I was like, okay, this is fine. And at a certain point, it dawned on me that this sort of technique they were talking about was just basically a critique like it, it was it was like oh this is just being in a studio critique like I've done that like I've done this for hours and hours and so um and, and it's one of the things I really loved about uh art school is being in a critique I know some people hate it but for me it was always so thrilling I could sit in critiques for hours um and so it's a natural extension for me to come here where I get to basically sit and talk about art all day it's my favorite thing so and you can as a viewer you're not just looking at art you're critiquing it you're having a conversation with it if you spend some time with it yeah definitely so we've got kind of a, a lot of works around us that I, I, I was really excited about uh, the first one right here is this piece by Tom Shaw called self-portrait redemptive justice um, and I didn't I didn't know Tom too well. I know he went to the academy probably a little bit before you started, I think, right? Mm -hmm. Before you started there. Um, but actually, I worked in the library uh, while I was a student here at the museum, and he was such a, he was a regular visitor to the library, always in. So I, he was just a person who I knew was so interested in art history, because he would come in to look at images, and I think that shows up here, where you have this very classic um, example of sort of like the four horsemen of the apocalypse appearing in this woodblock print that he's made. Um, and I just, I think it's such a fascinating image. Um, one of the things I love about the way he uses these almost like scribble marks in the piece is because I love knowing that it looks really inconsequential. Like somebody just went, duh, 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 duh. but when you realize it's a woodblock print and somebody had to carefully carve out the scribbles, that they're not like, you can't just scribble that on there. In fact, you, you can, all the marks you're making are the negative space, all the white space. And once you start to pick them apart and think about how they were made, it's, it's really, really fascinating to me. Do you have any thoughts about this piece, Gary? Yes. Um, <laughs> Tom went from the Art Academy to be a designer for Bell, Cincinnati Bell, for many years. Uh, 
And there's another one of his pieces. And those pieces were very marketable. He had a gallery in Atlanta. They were beautiful. They were uh, abstract, actually not objective, uh, color, black and white, really well-crafted. And at one point in his life, he had some medical problems and uh, a kind of personal crisis, and he gave all of that up for this. And he did a whole series about his own black culture, very powerful images about guns, violence. Um, if you can see, if you can see them in any books on him, they're really powerful. And this is one of those. And, uh, he died not too many years ago. He had a lot of heart problems, but he was a wonderful person, very generous, very giving, uh, very talented. And, um, I think to see someone go from one way of making art as a designer to another way of making art as a fine artist and really attacking uh, powerful contemporary issues in culture was really astounding and he'll very much be missed. I didn't really know that about his past. Um, yeah. And when I came up here uh, to look at the show, I saw that work on the balcony and it looks so different. You know, I, yeah. I had no idea he was, cause I, this was the work I knew of his. I, when he, I started becoming familiar with him, he was already onto this phase of his career. So seeing that older abstract work, I was really surprised by it. And if you met him as kind of the, the kind, quiet person he was, and then he's doing these take no prisoners pictures, it was really an interesting contrast. Yeah. There is a sort of, um, yeah, I mean, the works are so, um, powerful and so dynamic and he was such a kind of quiet person um at least my dealings with him he was he was very he was very soft-spoken but he was so 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 nice um to me i i like artists who won't let me off the hook mm -hmm. and what way does this not let you off the hook i have to look at it i have to think about the history i have to look think about why it's a portrait I have to think about why that tower is broken and who that ghost is over there. Mm. Those little squiggles are very much like his early history mm. and why that's there. And um, the graphic power really, I mean, it's so sharp, you know, that you can't be comfortable in front of it. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot there. Yeah. Even I kind of wondered about, you know, you're you pointing out his his work, taking a focus more on race relations um, as well. And even that like sort of black and white, that's sort of not only the part of the work, but then in that pattern, the checkerboard pattern of the floor felt very intentional to me. Like whenever I see a checkerboard pattern like that, it makes me think of like, okay, we have two, two opposites being put next to each other for a very intentional reason. So mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, I kind of, while we're sort of looking at this wall, I kind of want to hop one over to Stuart Goldman, who is, was sort of a, you know, just a staple of the Academy for many, many years. Um, and I'm, I'm assuming you, you taught with Stuart for quite a while, a right? A long time. Yes. Yeah. Cause he was, I'm sure, does it say, can you read there what years he taught? I know he retired in about maybe 2008 or something. Oh, he it was, was before that. Yeah. He, yeah. He was there when I started at 1978. So it's probably in the early seventies. Yeah. Yeah. It says 2000. So he was, he retired, uh, in 2000. Um, but Stuart was just sort of felt like one of those people who was just like a pillar of the Academy. Like he was just a part of it and you just kind of had to sort of 
he, he felt like he came with the architecture or something. Um, and I was, I never actually had Stuart as a teacher. Um, cause he only taught for two years. I think while I was there, I think he retired while I was mm-hmm. in my sophomore year, but I also remember being a little bit afraid of him. <laughs> I was always actually a little bit afraid of him. And now I'm less afraid of him because he's on our board and I talk to him actually quite a lot. So, <laughs> so I, I still, I, I still have to say, see Stuart. So I, I've maybe conquered my fear of him, but he just had this demeanor that was, I think the self portrait kind of captures a little bit of, there's something very serious feeling about Stuart and there's something kind of gruff about him. But then it's really fascinating because a lot of his work is, you're talking about kind of a playfulness. Um, he is a person who is definitely unafraid to experiment and right. take his work into really unexpected places, I think. But I think part of it is that he was the figure of the quintessential painter, mm. a painter's painter. Yeah. You know, and he carried that with him. And I think that was kind of awe-inspiring. Yeah. But I think also, uh, when I look at like this portrait, Stuart's and this one, we forget, we think of the portrait as a picture of the individual, but it's also a picture of the artist looking at the individual. Yeah. And so do you want to represent the mood of the person? Do you want to represent the actual physical features of the person? Or how do you want to dig into that person? And here, Stuart is really physically digging into himself. You know, it's, it's not quiet. It's not soft. It's not about light. It's about some kind of psychological or some kind of really digging aspect. Yeah. So that's important to think about how different the portraits are based on how different the artists are. Yeah, that's true. That's a good transition to, to maybe talk about what's behind us <laughs> because this piece could not be more different than Stuart's, you know, <laughs> to, to look at these two artists and how they handle materials are like polar opposites at Stuart's very physical, aggressive, uh, mark making. And then we come to this, uh, piece by Connie McClure, um, which is just, I mean, I came around the corner and it kind of took my breath away. I'd seen the piece before, but it still was like, <gasps> like it's so full of light and, and, um, it feels so, I don't know. I don't know how else to describe it. What, what do you think? Well, I'll tell you a little bit about Connie. Uh, she's been around Cincinnati for a very long time. Mm-hmm. And there's probably very few individuals in the country who are masters of traditional Renaissance techniques. Mm-hmm. So she knows fresco. She knows encaustic, she, which is wax painting. She knows egg tempera. And um, this is metal point. Mm-hmm. And you can you take a, a a nib with a little bit of metal. It can be gold, it can be silver, or whatever. And you put it. You draw on top of a ground, which is a, a white substance that will take that metal and hold it. And then over time, the metal will corrode a little bit and change color. But this whole drawing is constructed from marks like this. Metal point is a very intimate kind of thing and it's usually done on small surfaces and it's done for things you want to look carefully at an object or something like that so for her to tackle this family photograph in a technique that she built up 
and from light to dark, mark after mark after mark after mark after mark after mark is really incredible. Yeah, I'm from the side I'm standing on, I can just see this woman's dress, and you can just see how many little marks make up that dress. Um, and it makes a lot of sense when you talk about that as being something designed for a much smaller scale. Scale is such an important part of this work, too, because it's this thing that we're used to seeing at a smaller scale, probably the scale you would probably more traditionally draw in silver point. Um, but thinking of the scale of like a, a three by five family photo. And then when you blow it up to this scale, it's like taking this thing that feels sort of, uh, you know, almost insignificant or just mm -hmm. like a family snapshot. And it gives it so much more power by just taking that and giving it this totally unexpected right. scale. And patience isn't a hallmark of a lot of contemporary art. Yeah. I think it gets away with it, like the, the sort of making that thing so big because of that sort of carefulness and the gentleness of the mark making that it never becomes this thing that feels sort of overblown unnecessarily. Right. You know, it just it feels so right at this scale. I wanted to look at this piece over here, which I feel is a little unassuming um, in the corner here called French Windows by um, Tony Batchelor. Um, who was another uh, person who was sort of a staple of the academy while I was there. And he actually retired the same year I graduated. So again, I'm, I'm looking at our labels and going, that's not right. Because <laughs> I think he, he was retiring in 2003, not 2005. Um, and my experience with Tony was that I, I had a class with him called, I think, Creative Processes. And I remember being this sort of young, you know, student who just thought, oh, creative processes. Like, how do you teach somebody to be creative? I just remember being kind of cynical about it at first. And it was actually one of the most helpful classes I ever had. And Tony was really great at breaking things down into very practical lessons. Like, I remember one of the ones he, he taught us early on was this idea of, um, a river flows faster when you have narrower banks that giving yourself some like some limits actually helps creativity flow. So sort of having a blank page and sort of everything is possible is actually less helpful than maybe narrowing yourself down a little bit by bringing in, giving yourself a few restrictions and then seeing where that takes you. Um, and he was also, he was this very experimental art maker that, I mean, I remember this looks a lot different than the work he was making when I was at school. He had sort of gone on to be really interested in chance processes, um, was all about, you know, making pieces based on dice rolls. And, and he had these series of works that were sort of these shaped pieces that were the very shape of them was determined by chance. And then the marks were determined by chance and all of these things. So um, a lot of things inspired by John Cage. But this is interesting because it's, it's a little bit uh, earlier work, and it's, it looks a little different than I would have expected. I've never seen this. But then I, I can remember some of the things he was showing us um, in class, like artists like Sigmar Polky and stuff, that, that when I see this, I go, oh, that's right. He was really into Sigmar Polky. <laughs> What's your memories of Tony? Um, well, I'm going to put two people together, Tony Batchelor and April Foster, right oh, there. Perfect, yeah. That's a good, um, that's a good match. <laughs> those two taught together for probably 25, 30 years at the Art Academy. And you would not find two more exacting, meticulous printmakers or teachers. 
in either one of their classes, when you came in, you would have an absolute written out list of all the things you had to do to make this successful. And both of them were also very patient and meticulous in their work. Uh, Tony, in one end, chance and those kinds of processes. April and her interest in the natural world uh, as a, she's one person who began as a, uh, uh, a biology botany student and wound up in art. But that produced uh, many years of really quality printmakers at the Art Academy who really knew how to do etching, lithography, and screen printing. And screen printing is very common. I mean, if you look at the the cups that refreshments come in at different places, or if you look at, at posters of all kinds, that's screen printing. But to do it in a fine art way, uh, with the kinds of inks you had and the kind of processes available to create something like this was really very different. One other good thing about Tony, just to mention a side thing, is that um, he recognized that uh, the oil-based screen prints were toxic, and he got the whole school to turn back over to water-based screen print. So, But yeah, both of those were really fine teachers and uh, good models for the students in printmaking. Yeah, I, for, I, I took a litho and etching with April, and I remember just after the first, the first lithograph I made, I just thought, why on earth would anyone ever want to do this? <laughs> I just could never imagine. It's, it is so much an work. attitude. It is so much work, and I just thought, I could draw these things faster than you can print them. <laughs> this is so insane. I mean, but I'm still glad I know it, because now whenever, like, a, a lot of times things, when we talk about printmaking in uh, the museum, a lot of people have questions about how the processes work. And I always go, oh, well, actually, I know this because I, I did it. And I remember how to make a lithograph. Well, I, I mean, I couldn't do it for you, but I understand the principles behind it and the principles behind etching. Um, and I never took screen printing, but, you know, I, I get the gist of that, too. Right. So, But there is something magical about prints. Like Tom Shaw, there's no way you can draw in all those accidental marks, yeah, you know, yeah. and things like that. So there... And that's to both Tony and, and April really enjoyed the the nature of printmaking for what it was. Yeah, yeah, that's true. I, I, I that is something that there is a nice. I remember I, I responded much more to etching. I could see myself doing that just because it's a little more easy to wrap your head around like how it works. But it does have those great like the sort of residual ink that stays on the plate and the way that changes then it gives this sort of richness to the to the work that is always really exciting. So. Yeah, I, those are great, uh, great comparisons to make, and they could not, uh, their work could not be di more different, but I think you're right about saying how precise they were. I remember that about both of them getting those packets, now that you say that. That's right. Very rigorous, like, okay, this is, the packet on how to produce a lithograph, I swear, was like that thick. <laughs> it was insane. Yeah. It was like this giant staple thing, and you and your, your litho partner would be like reading it, and like, okay, go to the closet and grab some gum Arabic, whatever that <laughs> is, and you're like squirting stuff on a stone. It was insane. <laughs> not for everyone. No, I, it was much easier to go with you and just be a do drawing where you just <laughs> I'm just going to go downstairs and buy a piece of paper <laughs> I can erase it if I don't like it yeah. so I want to kind of go out to the uh, balcony here yeah this is Tom's yeah this we can just talk about it really quick since we were talking about it earlier this was a piece you were talking about um, that we were, we were looking at Tom Shaw. So this is uh, Davy Jammin number 33. So 
it's so different from what we were just looking at uh, his work, you know, definitely the color is, is a much bigger uh, part of this. You said that he, these pieces were very successful in sort of a mm-hmm. commercial way. Yeah. I guess it does feel very like eighties too. Like this is what yeah. was selling in the eighties too. Well, and he, I mean, he was in a world of, uh, commercial work working mm-hmm. for Cincinnati bell. Right. And so to translate his commercial work into fine art, it looked like this. And he did the gallery scene and whatever, but when he when he jumped into those woodcuts, it was not commercial work at all. And I I don't think he sold that many of them. You know, people who museums might have taken some or a few collectors, but he went from selling a lot to selling not very much because they were really strong pieces, hard to live with. Mm-hmm. And then sort of, we've got kind of a few pieces here um, that are worth looking at, too. Uh, that's a piece by uh, Kim Flora, isn't it? I can't see it, uh, yes. the label, but I thought that was Kim's. So we have Kim Flora above, um, who actually uh, went to school with me. She was a few, just actually a year uh, younger than me, I think, and um, has been here at the museum for ever. <laughs> she started while she was here, uh, while she was a student, she started working in design and installation, probably as like an intern or a work study type deal. Um, and she just kind of never went away, I don't think, and has kind of worked herself up to be the head of that department at this point. Um, so it's interesting to see Kim's work here because I work with Kim all the time uh, here at the museum. Um, and uh, I think it's kind of interesting to see it paired with Kim because I think she's uh, Kim Krauss, whose piece is below it, because she's very much, I think, a student of Kim, too, mm-hmm. and making work in that vein uh, right. of Kim. So, again, when we think about, uh, we were talking about Stuart, those painters, painters, I kind of think about Kim as sort of coming out of that same lineage. Right. And really, they're they're both people who I think their paintings and their drawings are kind of the same thing. They're almost Mm. not a border between the two. That's true. You know, because there's a lot of handwork and a lot of mushing around and a lot of exploring and um, color work. So that's what I I think of them as, at least in those pieces, as um, painting and drawing kind of at the same time. Yeah. For both of them, it's a lot about layering and kind of scraping away and, and leaving those traces of the, of the process. That's a Mm -hmm. big part of it. And I think that top piece by Kim shows a lot of that kind of feelings of, of layers underneath and and scraping. And she's always been great at sort of building these things that are really dense and, and full of the, you always feel like you could, if you could do like a little archeological dig on them there, you would find things buried underneath or something. Um, I was really excited when I walked by here the other day and I saw this case. So it's full of like some Art Academy catalogs. This catalog right here, the one number eight, was actually what made me come to the Art Academy. (laughs) So when I see it, I go, it has this really emotional um, feeling for me. Um, because I remember this catalog so thoroughly, um, cause I looked through it a lot and I just remember this, this sort of duct tape binding that was so clever, um, and just very like spoke to me as, you know, in high school senior that said like, oh, these people are so cool. <laughs> the catalog is really an interesting thing because it has to appear to an eight, 18 year old who wants to be an artist but is clueless about what that really means right. and yet has to say 
what that 18-year-old is going to get for their investment of money four years later. Yes. <laughs> and that's really hard to do. Yeah. I mean, that's what I think about. Like, when I look at it, I think about how successfully it did that, though, that yeah. it, like, it spoke to me as a an 18-year-old, you know? And it was sort of hitting all the right buttons for me. Um, and But I think it did do a pretty good job also of of sort of conveying the sort of silliness of the art academy at times too. And it's, it's whimsy as well. So, you know, I remember I had pictures of student work and you could see a good mix of people who are doing things that were very academic and very serious, um, you know, traditional art making, but then it was also so playful. Um, so it, I think it did a good job of saying like, Oh, this is a place I want to go. Like this is yeah. a place I would, I, I would feel at home here. Um, I would say, so that catalog, I, I don't want to give it all the soul credit. Cause also at the time, um, Sarah Colby was in charge of admissions and she also did a very good job of, <laughs> of sort of convincing me to go to the academy and, and just charmed me to no end. This is also, the Incliner was um, a poetry magazine we had for a while. Mm -hmm. And um, this is a, uh, an invitation for something called the Minumental, which is a show where students, faculty, and staff can submit pieces that are two inches in diameter and no more. And there's a small exhibit of that up in the, the library if you want to look at it. But this is on its 32nd year of being exhibited at the Art Academy. So there are a lot of interesting things that happen within the, within the history of the Academy that you don't always see. Yeah, and you're being a little modest here, too, because you started Monumentals, right? Yes. <laughs> well, yeah, and unfortunately, the library is not open today, but uh, you can come back during the week, or uh, they're open on the second uh, Saturday of the month um, to see. I, w I saw my name on there, and I, I was like, I had to remember, like, what did I even, like, I couldn't remember what I had made, and then I did saw Did you see it? Yeah, I did. Well, I it was great. It yeah. was. <laughs> I had forgotten. I, like, I literally forgot I had made it, but yeah, they, there was, it's a really nice little collection there. And I'm also glad that it was, I, it was interesting, you had Keith uh, Benjamin curate it, uh, which I, I, I'm kind of sad there's no Keith in here, because Keith is another important professor to me who made a, a big difference and changed a lot of how I thought about art and, and, and just sort of, again, I think that playfulness and um, a sort of experimentation with really unconventional materials of sort of Keith. And, and there's a lot of people whose work I think you can always say like, oh, they, they're like a Keith follower. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> so one of the things here, I, I was a little surprised by this show. I had no idea that Joseph Albers taught at the academy. I mean, it looks like one year. <laughs> so it wasn't long, but Albers was such a big part of my education because um, his book, Interaction of Color, became sort of a basis of our color theory class when I was a, a freshman. And it's still one of those things I think about all the time, you know, even when it's like you have to paint your living room or something. And mm -hmm. I'll think about the effects of like, well, you know, this color looks like this when it's this big, but when you make it big, that changes it. It's like color is relative. The context changes everything. Um, so, I mean, this piece is black and white, so it's not a great example right. of, of Albert's work. We have one in the, one of the, one of his paintings in the, gallery 232 right now um that's a, a better example of his color work but it was just i just wanted to just quickly stop by him because he was a person who did make a big influence on my career i guess even though i never met the man <laughs> 
Well, too, with somebody like Albers, there's a lot of things that you think of when you think of art. But with Albers, I always think of art as research. Mm. You know, it's not some, the images are interesting and they're, they're aesthetic, but he's really figuring out how color works and he's demonstrating it in a kind of exact and precise way. So you're learning from it in a kind of direct way that maybe you don't as much from other kinds of mm. work that aren't after that. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. And, and, and I think this kind of, to make it, bring it full circle to your work, it's also like art as science experiment. Yes. You know, he's doing it in a different way than you're sort of, you're still being informed by science. Um, but he is actually the making of the stuff is the experiments almost. And it's like, well, I'm going to make this many pieces because I want to test how it works like this. And I want to test it like this. Um, and they can really be looked at as like a scientific study almost. Um, and some of them do have sort of that kind of Mr. Wizard G whiz, like cool, <laughs> like effects. I think it's actually technically the Academy's book, but they own an original copy of Interaction of Color that lives in our library here. Um, and it has all the original screen prints um, that you can, you know, they're plates where you're meant to sort of like pull one color along another and it does these crazy effects where it looks like the colors are moving and changing and you're like, I can't believe this is just a screen print, you know? Yeah. Um, but it is that kind of magic that... Uh, opens up your whole sense of like, wow, you can, you can really do a lot with this stuff. And it's just literally flat color. So I, I just, it was a big part of, um, what I can remember, especially about my early days at school. Well, thank you, Gary, for joining me so much, uh, today. My pleasure. And thank you guys for hanging out with us. Thank you for listening to Art Palace. We hope you'll be inspired to come visit the Cincinnati Art Museum and have your own conversations about the art. General admission to the museum is always free, and we also offer free parking. Special exhibitions on view right now are Art Academy of Cincinnati at 150, a celebration in drawings and prints, and Giorgione's La Vecchia. And opening March 1st is Paris 1900. Join us on Sunday, March 10th at 3 p.m. for a free gallery experience with our objects conservator, Kelly Rechtenwald. For program reservations and more information, visit cincinnatiartmuseum.org. You can follow the museum on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Snapchat, and also join our Art Palace Facebook group. Our theme song is Offrande Musicale by Bacalao. And like always, please rate and review us. I'm Russell Eyrig, and this has been Art Palace, produced by the Cincinnati Art Museum.